Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, we're joined by a writer's assistant and former showrunner's assistant and writer's PA who has worked on such shows as Netflix's Warrior Nun, Famous in Love on Freeform, and NBC's medical procedural Heartbeat. Currently, he was most recently the writer's assistant on The Bold Type, which just finished its third season on Freeform. Uh, he's a University of Pittsburgh alum and the pride of Stewartstown, Pennsylvania. Welcome, Brendan Gallagher. Thanks for coming on, Brendan. Uh, so good to be here. What a wonderful introduction. <laughs> um, we always start with a new guest finding out about you. So how did you get your start in television and sort of what inspired you to start wanting to work in this industry? Uh, that's always a great question. Uh, and I will start back in my childhood years when I was doing musicals at my local church. And uh, I'm from a very small town in Pennsylvania, Stewartstown. And uh, there, there's not a lot going on. And uh, the Methodist church in my town had sort of a summer theater program. And I started doing musicals. And then after I did one year, the music minister walks up to me and goes, you know, you got a lot of energy. You're a very talented actor. You are an awful singer. Can I give you voice lessons? <laughs> and, you know, uh, still wrestled with that. I never became a great singer, uh, but I was good enough to, you know, do the, like, comedic relief. And then I played Tevia and Fiddler on the Roof and whatnot. And that's kind of where my love of film and TV got started because I met some guys there from the local schools around that, uh, like me, who loved Monty Python and loved sketch comedy. We started writing sketches that we'd perform in church, and then that led to uh, realizing that uh, maybe we could do sketches not for church, right? <laughs> and maybe that would be better. And then, you know, uh, I'm now proudly an atheist, but that's where sort of the dream began. Uh, then I went to University of Pittsburgh, where I studied film, creative writing, and theater. And uh, in Pittsburgh, all the local universities kind of channel their students through like this film trade school called Pittsburgh Filmmakers. It's also a film mm. co-op, very DIY, like run and gun, get out and just make stuff uh, attitude, like local documentarians would rent equipment from there and source PAs from there and stuff. And that was really cool. And then I did a lot of theater in college where I would act and direct. And what's nice about theater is it makes you think about production design, costume design in a way that like film, f student films tend to be really just realism kitchen sink because right. people don't think like they don't have the money and the resources but in theater you know if you're putting on shakespeare or something you have to have a concept and an idea and work with designers and and think that way and i feel like that actually made me realize for the first time that maybe this was a good preparation for tv because tv is a lot like theater in terms of the way that dialogue is in the front seat uh, the way that you're collaborating with designers, constantly creating new material. And, you know, that sort of led me to, I moved to New York after college and I was like, well, I think I want to be an indie filmmaker, but I also want to do like web series stuff. And that was the time when um, Broad City was on the air as, by on the air, I'm sorry, I mean on YouTube, like as a web series, not as right. a television show yet. High Maintenance had just come out, um, Issa Rae's, um, Diary of a Black Girl, I forget the exact title of that, the pre, what she did to kind of get noticed for Insecure was on as well. And so it just felt like you could just make a web series and get right, famous. Right, you know? right, right. Uh, unfortunately, that was only true for about three or four people. Uh, but I was doing that and um, I met someone on the back of a film truck. I was the unit PA, which is sort of like the lowest level of a locations department where you literally like make sure that the bathrooms have toilet paper. You make sure that you have road cones for people, like anything that wouldn't go on a truck. Uh, right. Although I do have to say that I think making sure the bathrooms have toilet paper is probably the, one of the most important jobs. Fair enough, but not glamorous. <laughs> right. And so no, I was doing yeah. that in locations assistant work, just hoping to like break in and, you know, some somehow that was going to lead to me being a director, you know. Right. And you learn pretty quickly, like, Unfortunately, and I don't want to break anyone's heart, it is very difficult to work your way up working on set to directing because eventually Absolutely. you'd have to just go make your own stuff. Right. Uh, whereas editing and writing are much more viable paths to the creative side. Um, people don't want to see you as a creative when you're doing the grunt work on set. They want to have that distance from you sometimes, I think, unfortunately. And so me and my buddy were like, you know what? We're on the back of a truck. We've been on the back of a truck all summer on three different features 
maybe it's time to try another trajectory here because I didn't want to become a professional AD. I didn't want right. to become a gaffer or a sound guy. So what does my trajectory look like? Uh, so we started a production company. We bought a Red One camera when the price dipped uh, post-recession. <laughs> and we just started making stuff. And we made short films and commercials and music videos and web series, trying to save money for our own stuff. But uh, we were talking before we started recording about the problem of production costs being driven so low and people think they can just make anything with almost no money. With your iPhone. Yeah, charging right. enough money to do something right. Because, again, you can't get good sound on your iPhone. You right. can't uh, make production design happen on your iPhone. You can't make sure that there's a truck that has the toilet paper on it on your iPhone. You can't do catering on your iPhone. And those things cost. And so I found that I was like asking people for favors on jobs that weren't mine to try to build a portfolio to make enough money to start making my own stuff. And it was like, this is a kind of backwards. And then my buddy, he uh, got a graphic design job on 30 Rock that was a union and paid a lot of money. And he was like, you know, um, I love what we're doing, but I would like to make money. Right. And I looked around and said, okay, is there anything on any side of TV that is like this for me that I could go make money doing? And I thought, you know... While there's plenty of crew jobs on the East Coast, whether it be in the South or in New York, anything involving the writers is going to be in L.A. Right. And I just thought, you know, if I stay here, I'm going to be doing what I'm doing, which at that time was assistant directing, line producing, uh, consulting on little short films and indies, sometimes directing, but almost always co-directing with the person who has the money. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, you know, this isn't leading where I want to go. And I'm finding web series doing web series has made me so much more excited about TV and I was only watching TV because TV was getting so good because this is the time when Friday Night Lights was on the air, when Mad Men was on the air, when Breaking Bad was on the air and I was like, so the creative possibility and the financial possibilities are in TV. And the opportunities. And the opportunities. Sure. Uh, and that was when I decided to move to Los Angeles and I was out here for about eight months before I got a call from a someone I knew from theater in Pittsburgh who was this Lizzie Donaldson, who was the post-production supervisor on Revenge. And she said, you want to come be a post PA? And that is where the TV career started. Mm -hmm. And so you've since gone on to be a uh, writer's PA, a writer's assistant, a showrunner's assistant, not necessarily in that order. Um, can you explain how that path went for you? Because each of these jobs is, uh, we were talking earlier, it's, it's, it's a very different trajectory. Um, each one is a different step. It doesn't sound like it for people who have never worked in the industry or aren't as familiar with the industry, because an assistant job is an assistant job is an assistant job, it sounds like. But they're not. They're very different in terms of both um, the, in television especially, uh, in terms of like how difficult it is to get them, the responsibilities you have and what you learn and who you're close to and what you do is very different on each of these jobs. So it is like a progression. Yeah, I, I think that's 100% true. And I think, you know, one piece of advice I have to uh, people trying to get that first assistant job is that all these jobs are different and they all have different proximities to the writer's room and different value. And so I'll go through my kind of career path with that kind of front and center. Sure. And so um, post-PA was a great job to get access to the writers on the show Revenge that I was on. But there's a couple of reasons for that that aren't universal. One is that the editors and the writers shared offices. On the first floor were the writers. On the second floor were the editors. In that time, everyone was still getting dailies on DVDs. Someone had to deliver those DVDs. Mm. Directors get dailies. Writers get dailies. Actors get dailies. Which means I was physically taking the DVD downstairs to the showrunner and handing it to him in the morning. So what I would do, the editors would get in like 9, 30, 10 o'clock. I'd get in at 8, open the door, turn everything on, take all the DVDs, get a cup of coffee, and be there when the writer's PA got in, chat with her. Be there when the writer's assistant got in, when the showrunner's assistant got in, when the script coordinator got in, chat with them. When the staff writers got in, because they would want to beat the showrunner in too. Mm -hmm. And so then like I had a built-in half hour every morning to just shoot the shit, network, and, and build those connections with uh, the people that maybe could hire me in the future. Then additionally, the directors would come in for their cuts. They'd come with the writer. I would be in charge of getting them lunch or whatever, and i have more time to hang out with them. And then additionally, the post-PA is there late because they have to stay to get dinner for the editors if the editors want it. Well, who else is staying late? Whatever writer's on episode. Mm -hmm. So I could just dip down to the writer's room, no, writer's office. No one else is there. Hey, how's it going? And often they would want, you know, don't badger them, but 
writers love love nothing more than a distraction, and I can sure. be that distraction. <laughs> right, you know? right, absolutely. Um, and so the showrunner's assistant on that show got me an office PA job on Heartbeat. Now, I kind of view office PA in terms of closeness to the writer's room as a step back from post PA because it's not really designed unless you are writing in the same offices as the production is shooting, which is more of a network thing. Mm -hmm. And this is a network show. You may not have that kind of access because nowadays with like Netflix and stuff, the writers might be writing in Santa Monica and production might be at Universal. Right. So bear that in mind that this is a unique situation where it was medical show. Medical shows, what's the set? It's a hospital. You have to do a build for the hospital because you have to go in the surgery room. You can't just go shoot in an abandoned hospital. That's going to look like a horror movie. <laughs> right. uh, you have to build something that looks state-of-the-art and beautiful, right? right? So set and the office and post and writing are all right there on campus at Universal. And as an office PA, I was kind of in the epicenter of that. And also the showrunner's assistant on that show – from Revenge went on to be the showrunner's assistant there, and he knew that he was going to be permitted promoted to staff writer uh, because he had arranged that with the showrunner. So he, and he said, "Look, tough it out for a few months as office PA. We'll get you the bump to writer's PA when I get bumped up when the money's available." And that all happened, which LA promises right. sometimes don't come true. But this one, the guy was uh, a straight shooter, and he was telling me the truth, and I ended up being the writer's PA. And then the writer's PA, which um, basically. On paper, the job of the writer's PA is to get lunch for the writers, uh, make sure that the printer has the right paper in it so the script coordinator is not pissed off when <laughs> it's canary draft and you put goldenrod in the right. uh, printer. You know, uh, make sure every script's printed out. Make sure that communications open. Make sure that no one is coming in the writer's room who shouldn't be there. Make sure that if anyone calls, all the messages are taken. And you better make sure that uh, when the showrunner wants a lunch reservation at the restaurant that they like, they better have it. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty much like any assistant job, whether you're on an agent's desk or at working for editors or whatever, it's the same job, right? You're rolling calls and you're doing what's needed to be done. Um, what I would advise people that are in that writer's PA position is look how you can be helpful and useful to the other assistants because they're like – the, the writer's assistant might get an episode. Okay, well, who's going to take notes when they get an episode? The showrunner's assistant might be developing and actually have a meeting with their agent or manager one morning, and you know they something needs to get done, and there's a conference call. Well, I'll right. set it up for you. Mm -hmm. And so you're cheating yourself if, as a writer's PA, you're not learning the skill sets of the other jobs. And it quickly taught me that I don't want to do script coordinating, which we can get into that later if you like. But it wasn't a job that suits my skill set, and it wasn't a job that I think leads as naturally to being staffed as writer's assistant. Right. Um, and so I learned that valuable lesson as well. And so that show, uh, Heartbeat, premiered to a point seven. And at that time, now nowadays, that's not an automatic cancellation, but this was the era when like a 1.0 was a bad number. Sure. Uh, and Unless you were the CW. Right. Yes, exactly. CW accepted. They can do a point, right. they can do a point two as long as it has social reach, right? <laughs> right, It's right, just right. a different business model. But sure. if you're one of the big four, uh, you need, nowadays, that number is more like 0. 0.5, mm -hmm. and it goes down all the time, because when I first moved out here, that number was like 1.5, you know? Right. But in that time, debuting to a 0. 0.7 was a kiss of death. Uh, it was a medical show, kind of straight up the gut. Uh, they'd wanted to do something a little more quirky with it, but the network kind of pushed back. And so the EPs were like, okay, so we're a standard medical drama. The numbers aren't good. We're going to get canceled. Right. And so after the, the day after the premiere, uh, the writers came in and cleared their desks out. I helped them leave. <laughs> and I had three months left on the job. So I just sat in this room by myself for three months, and the phone would ring, and I would have to say, Oh, yeah, you know, she's available. Um, I think she just stepped out. I'll have to give you a call back and then call the producer in Santa Monica who's working from working from home. Mm -hmm. I'm using air quotes um, with that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're like, uh, just tell them I'm busy, you know. Right. Um, but I got some writing done. Um, and then the next job, and this is such a Hollywood kind of thing where one of the writers from Revenge needed a showrunner's assistant. And one of the writers from Heartbeat was at a cocktail party with that writer. And said, hey, um, you know, Brendan Gallagher was a great writer's PA for me on Heartbeat. And then he said, Brendan Gallagher, he was the post PA on Revenge. I remember he would come down and drink coffee and talk to us every day. Right. He was great. Can you start tomorrow? You know, and so I was showrunner's assistant for season one of Famous in Love. Um, that show continued on without my boss, which uh, I won't get into the details here because it's not my story to tell. Sure. Uh, but suffice it to say that uh, assistants are a lot like squires if the night 
is conquered, so too is the squire, and he <laughs> must leave. Um, right, right, right. And that's what also ended up happening with the bold type. I was on season one of the bold type as the writer's assistant. Uh, the showrunner was replaced. Again, not my story to tell. Uh, I love season one. We had great no- notices in the New York Times, which, you know, that brought tears to my eyes. Like something I worked on, got a good review in the Times, like, you know, little victories. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, just the network and the showrunner just were not seeing eye to eye on a few things. And they went in a different direction, which Freeform does a lot. And uh, it happens. And so then I was out on the street again. Uh, but that showrunner really felt badly about how that went because we were expecting to come back because the show by Freeform's metrics was something like a hit, if not a, a commercial hit, a critical hit, sure. um, which you don't want to – Freeform is short on, you know, and it continues to be a critical hit with the new showrunner. And I hear it's great. I can't sit down and watch it. You know what I mean? It would be too painful. But um, – they got me the gig on Warrior Nun, which is forthcoming on Netflix. Um, I was a writer's assistant there, and uh, you know I hope we get picked up for another season. Uh, we'll see. There's, uh, they're just finishing up shooting because the Netflix's model sometimes is write ten, shoot ten, do post on the ten, and then air the ten, which means like that could be the kind of like what I don't know eight months until you find out if the show's going to come back right whereas the network model you would never get more than two months off because you're writing shooting and editing concurrently sure absolutely um yeah I never understood I mean early on I understood that Netflix model in terms of uh you know getting people interested just dump the whole thing get people to binge watch but nowadays in the subscription model it's like with with Hulu with uh HBO, they, they air weekly mm-hmm. to get you to subscribe longer. Right. But Netflix doesn't seem to, to care about that. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, I'm, I have very strong opinions about the streaming business models. And I, I don't want to say too much just because I aspire to work for these places again. Sure. But I do think, like, when you look at the financials and you're like, okay, so your spend is this extremely high in the billions of dollars and your model for growth is limited it reminds me of espn in the early 2000s where their model depended on being a huge chunk of every cable subscription Mm -hmm. and everybody wanting it and then the internet changed and you could get highlights on twitter and they weren't unique anymore right and then they had to shift their business model and i wonder if some of the streamers are going to have to consider that when they're no longer the only game in town and they're having trouble keeping their library. I think the canary in the coal mine to me for that was uh, when I think Netflix paid like $100 million to keep friends for a few years. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that just doesn't seem sustainable. And I wonder if when Disney Plus enters the market with their massive back catalog, I, I just, I'm interested to see how you can make enough originals at a place like Hulu or Netflix or Amazon to compete without a back catalog. Well, Hulu actually is it's still owned by who NBC Universal. Oh yeah, yeah. So they'll have the NBC yes. Universal back yes. category all uh, catalog. But I do know because Fox and Disney merged, all of the Fox's stuff is going to go over to right. Disney too. So No, you're right. Hulu's in, Hulu and that's has that. very particular and interesting and then Warner's is going to have something mm-hmm. and so um I'm not here predicting doom for a particular company. I just think that we're going to see a dramatic shift in the business models. Right. And I don't know if that's going to look like we're going to just keep churning out more and more originals and the market is better for us. Right. Or maybe is it going to contract a little bit and settle it more like 300 shows a year instead of 500? Right. I think there will be a contract. There has to be. There's too much money being spent, I think. Um, That being said, Netflix was smart because they knew at some point all of the huge conglomerates you know the foxes the universals the disney's the warner brothers at some point we're going to start their own streaming service so they knew early on that's why they've been developing original content for as long as they have and putting as much money into it because that's all they're going to have fairly soon that and you know a bunch of random you know direct to dvd stuff that nobody else seems to want to produce yeah uh, i I think films that's so true and that's why you see the big red n so clearly on everything they're making Mm because they want to really even if they only distributed they want to get it in your head that these are netflix originals and they they got in trouble for that because they called rupaul's drag race a netflix original in the uk which it isn't uh but that's their autopilot branding because they want that that relationship they do a lot of that like there are a lot of bbc shows that they'll co-finance or they'll they'll get exclusive rights to the u.s so it'll say a netflix original even though it aired a year ago in the B- on the bbc or something totally you know uh dairy girls mm-hmm. comes to mind as one of those and um you know these things like 
what what I'll say to assistants out there who are kind of trying to read the tea leaves, you don't need to be uh, reading everything on Deadline or Hollywood Reporter every day. But I think like following the trades and prominent critics on Twitter can help you kind of see where the industry is going. And look, a job's a job. I liked working for Netflix. I liked working for NBC. I liked working for Disney. Um, they all have their particular quirks. Um, Disney is very firm about their accounting. So when you're a PA there, that's a little harder because they're chasing every single cent and their accounting department's very robust. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, Disney's hyper-organized and there's always someone to call if you need something, which some of the streamers don't have that organizational structure. Right. And so it's not to say like, oh, you need to like predict doom and gloom and be following every single sale and every single thing. But as an assistant, you can start to get a sense of the ecosystems and environments of what to expect. Right. And let's just say that um, I enjoyed working for Netflix more because I think I understood they have a kind of startup-esque culture there. Yeah. Um, it's a little more horizontal. It's a little more you might have seven or eight people on the team that you work with other than one point person that you go to for things. And that has its pros and cons. But I knew going in kind of the corporate culture because I was keeping up with the trades and kind of heard the, the, the murmurs. And I think that's a positive thing to do both when you go to work for a studio or a network, but also individual showrunners. Cause you can kind of, if you don't know someone who works for the person who might be your boss, you can kind of see the tea leaves and see what's written about them in the trades and see how they do business, you know? Right. Right. Um, <clears throat> And I do think that Amazon actually can, one, afford to lose a lot of money. Yes. And two, it's a loss leader. Yeah. It's part of that whole Amazon Prime package, especially because I had heard that, I think it was Walmart, is going to that free shipping Mm -hmm. model without a subscription, like free shipping for everything Mm kind of thing, um, as well as trying... I would be surprised, honestly, if... Walmart doesn't try. I, th- I know they tried some sort of like a red boxy kind of thing, which yes. failed um, because, I mean, most people don't rent DVDs anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but I would be surprised if to try to get their retail business back, they don't create some sort of a, you know, streaming service to package with it, music service, that kind of thing. Because that seems to be the en vogue. I, I think that's 100% true. I think that... Um... Apple is also, once, oh, you know, it's been off. It, I was surprised at how slow a start they've jumped off to. Yeah, And I've been agree. disappointed, not disappointed, but um, taken aback a bit by how they haven't created like a magical aura around it the way they do around their hardware. Right. Um, like the announcement just kind of felt like, again, the critics I follow on Twitter and I listen to their podcasts, they kind of felt like it was underwhelming. They're kind of launch their soft launch. So when the content comes out, I'm interested to see what that looks like. But yeah, I look at um, Google's another one. Facebook's another one. There there are these companies that uh, they can afford to just flush a lot of money away as a way to like, it's almost like their TV can be their branded content. And I think that makes sense. And with Netflix, I just wonder, and I, I, I don't doubt it because they've got money to play with and they've got investors who are mm-hmm. excited and they've got smart staff. It's just that I don't see this current iteration of their business model being the long-term business model where, like you said, Amazon can just keep doing what they're doing. Right. And I don't see that ever needing to end for them. Sure. Uh, and again, like... TV changes, shows get canceled. Don't choose, don't go work for Amazon over Netflix because you think they've got long-term, long-term sustainability. But it's just interesting to think about, like, to speculate and to think about where the business is going. Right. And just understand that, like, you know, just like executives need a little creative knowledge, I don't think it hurts as a creative to have a little of executive kind of thought absolutely. process. Right, absolutely. Uh, and to be honest, I would be surprised if in, I don't want to say the near future, but in the in the f- far near far future i guess uh that somebody like a google or a facebook doesn't just buy netflix i i mean and honestly like that that would if that was the long-term positioning it would make a lot of sense given the business moves they're doing now because they're they're maximizing saturation by maximizing debt right and that seems to be like if if they were a smaller company i would say oh you're positioning yourself to be bought but like you said like that's a that would be a huge Absolutely. i mean that that would be almost dependent on who's president at the time if they want that to go through because it'd be such a massive uh, right. merger right. um but i think but who would thought fox and disney 100% right? and i and uh, at&t coming in on hbo too Absolutely. like right. um and you know it's interesting cuz I, I do worry about corporate consolidation but the thing that i tell people is like 
you know, in the 30s and the 70s, we did the same thing where we went down to three companies and then we blossomed back to like 10 players. And then you, you know, there's always between maybe like three, there's always, they're never less than three and there's never more than like eight that like are serious players. And I mean, there's always little like mini companies and people making little stuff, but really like Hollywood has always kind of functioned on like a lot of American capitalism, a half a dozen big guys swallowing little fish and maneuvering each other and every 10 15 years one of the big guys becomes a little guy or goes away and a new player comes in right uh and i do think you know it's something to worry about but this is no different from the studio era or any other kind of realignment moment right right um and in addition i think that uh Google bought YouTube and I know that they were trying to make YouTube TV and it still seems to be doing, you know, okay with the streaming TV services, but they've never really gotten a hold of of like a big back catalog. I think that's and I true think. and the other thing that fascinates me with YouTube is like their audience doesn't come there for original content, their audience comes there for vlog content. Sure. And I don't think that TV is going away. I think that uh vlog stuff is going to exist side by side it was interesting being on a teen show uh famous in love which starred bella thorne who mm-hmm. really is more of an instagram star than she is an actress in my sure, view sure. and i think that the challenge you have there is the network is thinking wow like what a massive following this person has but the challenge is is that following isn't based on her acting ability necessarily not to say she's a bad performer but that's not why she's famous right and so there's this temptation when you're casting teens to early 20s, they're like, oh, it's a feeder system like the Disney Channel used to be. And it's like, well, yes and no. If you came out of Nickelodeon or the Disney Channel, you were guaranteed. And I know Bella had a show, but again, she's more famous for the online stuff. If you came out of that feeder system like the Mickey Mouse Club, you're not only guaranteeing that you've got an attractive young person to cast in things, you're guaranteeing they can also act, sing, and dance. Right. That's not a guarantee that's coming out of your YouTube channel that you do pranks or whatever. Right. So, like, you can't just put Logan Paul in a prestige drama and expect that to, like, work. Right. And, again, you know, I think you will see what does work is Zendaya has really savvy way of um, – her her people have used the internet to leverage her, mm-hmm. but you see that she's also consistently challenging herself as an actress and positioning sure. herself as an actress. Yeah, there will be success stories. But I think for the most part, these models of like put a bunch of YouTube stars or Vine stars or TikTok stars in a TV show is a bad one. <laughs> right, right. Because you're going to, yeah. I mean, there's an audience for it on YouTube, I think. But once you expand that to people who are, you know, and it's funny because back in the day, um, I shot some spec commercials. I ended up getting a spec, uh, getting an, an agent and doing a few uh, commercials. Um, but I was talking to um, uh, a commercial director who worked for an ad agency, and we were chatting. And it's like uh, he was telling me that the submissions he gets from you know whether they're from you know Scott Free, you know, with the Scots, uh, Tony and Ridley. Uh, and and all the directors they have, like Spike Jones was with propaganda, you know, versus smaller, you know, newer directors who had shot their own spec stuff. They don't grade on a curve, you know. What you see, whether you spent a hundred dollars or whether the commercial cost two million dollars, they're grading you. They're judging your material on the same. Line. It's not like they're going to give you a break because you didn't have a budget and think, oh, well, I bet you he could do more with a better budget. That's not the way it works. And I think the translation from like a YouTube actors and YouTube, you know, cr- content creators, vloggers and whoever being put into a professional acting project, you know, wh- whether it's a, a drama or comedy or whatever, they're not graded on a curve. It's like, well, they didn't have as big of a budget or they haven't had as much acting training. No. Are they good performers period 100 percent. and the skill set they're developing every day when they engage with their audience is much more like preparing you to be like uh the next carson daly or hosting good morning america it's not actually acting and those are some of the people that have made good transition like tosh.0 you know people who have made that transition usually become like talk show hosts and things like that and it it, that seems to work fairly well a a much more natural transition i think and you know i think it's just anytime there's a big new thing in town 
producers and executives get enamored of it and think, how can I incorporate this into, and you know, hip hop was like this when it came on the scene too. Like, how can we turn every rapper into an actor? How can we turn every athlete into an actor? Uh, How can we turn every model into an actor? And then that thing cools off in the culture and then it's a more normal pipeline that the people that are multi-talented can break through and those who aren't don't. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Now, uh, what are some of the, you, you moved to LA from New York via, or from Pittsburgh, no, Pennsylvania. Yep. Via New York. Mm -hmm. There we go. Um, What's something that you learned uh, during and after your move to LA that you sort of had wished you had known before? Hmm. Like for those people who are like, I want to do what Brendan did. I want to move to LA. I know it's what I have to do to, to progress my career. What are some of the things that you knew that you know now? That I wish I had known then. Right. Huh. You know, I think that I got lucky in a lot of ways because New York has a very similar uh, geography matters there and here about like where you choose to live and, right. and where you want to be. And so I'm glad I made the mistake in New York of living in Jersey City, which is super far from everything. And so when I came here, I knew I either wanted to be in Culver, where we pretty much are recording this, or on the east side where I live uh, Mm -hmm. in kind of Los Feliz, Silver Lake area. And so I think that's something I learned moving from a small city like Pittsburgh, where uh, it didn't really matter where you lived. You could get anywhere really quickly. Uh, You want to be a place that's kind of relevant. And you don't really walk much here, but like maybe a $5 lift from like events. Sure. Uh, And the other thing that I would say, um, I'm a naturally very social person, um, but you don't understand until you get here that the entertainment industry is in the fabric of everything that happens here. And so people think like, oh, the only networking I'm going to be able to do is like at an alumni event, you know, pit in Hollywood or whatever. But in reality, like just getting involved in anything you're interested in and meeting people, uh, or if you have to take a day job, one where you are customer facing and just meet lots of people all the time is, can be really positive. And so the thing that I end up telling people the most is just like really approach the move with your life as an extension of what you're doing in your business. And I don't mean that to be cold, but I just mean set yourself up for success where you're going to build your network and meet people. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and we talked earlier uh, before we were on recording about the importance of networking and, and, and just being available and being open to, to meeting people. Um, you were talking about like taking coffee with people and, and even people who just like, kind of reach out to you, although I'm not encouraging everyone to bombard <laughs> you right now. Uh, but, you know, because you never know who will, you know, turn out to be in a position to hire you in the future, that kind of thing. And well, that's a great point. And it's something that I, th- I think a smart thing that people who reach out to me are doing is that odds are a showrunner probably is too busy to get coffee with you. Um, sure. I didn't love when a showrunner on Twitter recently made that point that she said that, uh, you know, she's too busy to get coffee or to read your script, so don't waste her time. You know, like, we know that. You don't need to tell us that. Right, right. Um, But, you know, mid-level, lower-level writers and assistants probably do have time on their hands and may see you as a mutually beneficial person to meet. And, yeah, I was saying when we were, uh, before we got on, that it was interesting, the bold type, I think, because I do some freelance writing. I wouldn't call myself a journalist, but I would say, like, I blog and do essays and think pieces and such. Uh, and I'm kind of connected to that world. Plus, uh, working on the bold type, which kind of was about that world, I do get people who want to kind of transition from journalism or advertising or copywriting to TV uh, reaching out to me and they want to grab coffee. And I always, you know, maybe it's three to four weeks before I can do it, but I always try to make the time for it because to me, a, it's how I wish I had been treated when I got out here. Um, and B, you never know if the person sitting across from you might be in a position to hire you in a couple years. Right. But also, like, some of the most successful showrunners I know are still always expanding their network and making time to meet new people. Because new people means new opportunities and life takes interesting twists and turns. And, you know, don't don't schedule so many coffees that you're not writing don't think that that counts as work because it doesn't only the only work a writer does is writing Mm -hmm. but the social aspect's important and you know uh my wife claire and i go on lots of double dates we i go out to drinks i go out to mixers i get coffee i get breakfast because that's important part of being out here and la will feel isolating to you if you're from anywhere east of the Mississippi for sure because cities out here are so vast and horizontal and interstate driven um, that, you know, it's good to 
push yourself to get out of your house anyway, you know? Right. Uh, and to your earlier point, I, I would be happy to get coffee with people. Um, but yeah, if I do get bombarded, it'll just mean that I'll have to say, hey, uh, yeah, let's try it uh, July 27th. What do you think? <laughs> right. uh, September 15th. But uh, right. I, I always try. And I, and I hope that even when my ship comes in, quote unquote, that I can still do that. Because I really meditated on that showrunner saying she doesn't have time to get coffees or read scripts. And I was like, well, you, you, you should. And I think a way to do that that would be fair as a showrunner that I, I hope I'll employ when I'm at that level is maybe have a running list, say, like every Sunday morning or Wednesday afternoon, I'll get coffee with someone or read a script and you can go on my list. And maybe if the list is long enough because I have a hit show, maybe you have to wait till 2022 for that to happen. Right. Or but- have multiple people at the same time. Right, you know, and then when you're when in you know next October when you come up, I'll I'll reach out that you know my assistant will reach out on Monday and say, hey, <laughs> you said in 2019 you right. wanted to meet on Wednesday, and like right. I, I think I I hope that I can commit to having as robust and thoughtful a social life as I do now. Then you know, right. Um, being a former showrunner's assistant, I'm sure you've seen and read a lot of the submissions that come in. Um. What what are some of the things you noticed, both good and bad, that made scripts stand out? Well, the the biggest thing for me, and I just didn't think this mattered as much, is when you have a pile of 100 scripts and you're doing a medical show or you're doing a cop show and you read a really nice medical show when you're on a medical show, a really nice genre show when you're on a genre show, that matters to the showrunner because you can't spec a show that doesn't exist. Sure. But you can have something that the showrunner sees and is like, yeah, this is like really in our wheelhouse. But there's also another thing where uh, one of our staff writers on Warrior Nun had a really robust horror portfolio. She had been on Ash vs. Evil Dead. She had written some horror films. Like she wrote the um, Leprechaun like TV movie that had come out recently. And she's done some like she did one that was like cheerleaders on prom night fighting like a pig monster that was really like fun and okay. pulpy. And the showrunner savvily thought, you know, okay, I'm, I've got sci-fi background. I've got fantasy background. I think we could use someone with a horror background here. And so she got hired. And I think these two anecdotes show a balance that you need to strike. Don't go out with 20 samples that you think, okay, and I've got something for every type of show because they're going right. to say, what kind of writer is this person? But at the same time, if you know that you would be good for something or you know that you have a kind of a vibe that's going to fit, see if you can get in that pile because you'll have a higher chance of getting pulled out of it. And so what I tell people when I have these coffees or when they ask me, like, I just moved here, what do I need? What I would say is, like, think of the horizons of the kind of writing you do. And, like, for me, uh, my favorite shows are, like, Fargo, Justified, Friday Night Lights. I like dusty Taylor Sheridan style, not necessarily Westerns, but like rural working class kind of stories. And so I write samples that are in that milieu, but I have, for example, one that's kind of like a family drama and one that's more like a period action piece. And I'm working on one that's kind of sci-fi, but all of those samples that I have fit into that milieu of like who I am as a writer that when you could say, when you hire Brendan Gallagher, this is what you're getting. And even I think about that with my business cards. Like my business cards, I have a picture from Yellowstone I took when me and my wife did a cross-country road trip of like Buffalo coming towards our car. Mm. And I was like, okay, that kind of like shows who I am. And my wife, who I'll start calling her Claire instead of my wife since I mentioned she's Claire. Um, Which you're a newlywed. Newlywed. Congratulations. Thank you. Got my, yeah. Still getting used to my wedding ring. Um, but I feel like, you know, now that I've mentioned her name, I'll say Claire going forward. She's a comedy writer and her tastes, she likes kind of weirder, smarter kind of stuff. Like she loved what we do in the shadows. Uh, she loves baskets. She loves a lot of those kind of... FX, Comedy Central, Broad City kind of stuff. Fleabag. Fleabag, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That kind of world. But she also is trained in mm-hmm. sketch. She did stand-up. She's done improv. She came up through UCB, and she's a really strong joke writer. So she has kind of a goofier, network-friendly sample that feels kind of like something Mike Schur would do. Mm-hmm. But then she also has some really FX-y, high-concept comedy samples. And then she's an animated sample that would could do like an adult swimmy kind of thing. And that shows kind of the borders of what she's capable of, but also shows you who she is. And going back to your question, that is the th- that that kind of understanding the balance between submit things that fit the show 
but also show your voice is very difficult, but so important. Right. And that was the biggest takeaway I had from being an assistant reading script after script after script again and again and again across all the shows. The people who get hired are ones who you read the sample and you go, God, this feels like something like the bold type, but man, they are going to bring humor or a dark sensibility or great character development or great dialogue to to my script because the showrunner doesn't want to hire a doppelganger. Right. They want to hire someone who's going to make a great lieutenant for them. Right. And and cover a blind spot that they have that they need protection from because you are on the ship together and everyone's got to pull their weight. Right. Well, and I always go back to sports metaphors. Mm-hmm. And it's like fielding a baseball team or a football team. You know, you can't have a whole team of pitchers because then – you know, you're not going to have anyone that can hit the ball. You're not going to have anyone that can field the ball. You're not going to have base runners. You're just going to have a bunch of guys that can throw really hard and fast. Um, so when I speak to showrunners, it's always about assembling a team. What's your superpower? What are you bringing that's different than the other eight writers I have in that writer's room? What are you, in other words, do you play first base? Do you play second base? In other words, are you great at breaking story? Are you great on set? Are you great with, with, solving problems are you great at generating i you you generate a million ideas what is it that you're bringing to the table that's different or you know like i said your perspective your point of view um are you you know a dark joke you know character type person or are you really good with action scenes what what is it that you're bringing to that table um yeah i i couldn't agree with that more and then the other thing that i think about when i get questions like that about what i learned i think one of the biggest things that helps being an assistant in a room is that you're a better writer than you think you are. And you imagine there's this magical power that a producer-level writer has that, like, man, I just don't have it. But when you read their material, you see, A, there's a wide swath of ability. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you, you'll have a producer on, or even a staff writer on a show that you just are like, man, they are amazing on the page. They're so sure. good. Can I ever be that good? But there's also going to be somebody that you're like, oh, I don't see what's... They're not much right. better than me. They're not much different than me. Right. And I think getting that job makes it feel so much closer and gives you the energy to keep pushing through because it doesn't feel like this magical thing that's untouchable. Uh, so for those who don't have that job yet, just know that that is having been in the trenches, that is the case. Like you probably are good enough and you probably do know, and you probably just need to keep developing the tools you have and it'll happen. Right. And building that network. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, how many scripts have you written from the first time you typed fade in on a script that may not exist or may not have even been, you know, I mean, fifty or sixty off the top of my head. I mean, that's a, that's a, so. Uh, let me break it down this way. Um, I write at the very least two original samples every year. I have since I've gotten out here. I think four to six months, in my view, is roughly the right amount of time to spend on something that you're developing originally. Uh, I write faster when I'm not on a show, obviously, uh, but I've never fallen short of two scripts a year. However, on top of that, like if I get a certain idea or there's something I want to work on, like for example, um, Claire and I had an idea that was an hour long structure, but was kind of comic and we wrote it together. We banged it out in the month between our wedding and our honeymoon, just because we wanted to have something like that for both of our portfolios. And we loved the idea and we just kind of both saw it together. Um, And we're not going to try to get the guild together, but we would happily sell something together, you know? Um, And then... That was what I've done since I got out here, and that's been the last um, five years. And then in the four years before that, I was in New York, and I was working with a couple of different writing partners doing half hours, and we would bang out something. I I wasn't quite as thoughtful about structure at that time, and I was, as a young writer, I was writing a little faster. I would probably do something every three months uh, with, with one partner or another or a web series or a short film or what have you. And then, you know, in college, I was always writing plays and short films and that stuff, like I can't even go back and look at now. And I wouldn't even like, I wrote a feature in college in the sense that it was a thing. It was was, 90 pages. Yes, exactly. It was 90 (laughs) pages in final draft. I wouldn't call it a feature today. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if I, I had to guess, probably 60. And then you could go back to high school and sketches and short films. And I, I wrote a feature in high school, and that certainly does not qualify. I don't know if it was in Final Draft. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, that's kind of where I'm at. I do think that for TV stuff, it probably took me about eight years of writing consistently until I really felt like this is a sample that could be put in a pile with any sample and be good enough. And like, it's and how the, many scripts was it in that eight years? 
25 30 probably okay. um maybe 20 um but again yeah that probably about 20 uh and don't get me wrong like after five and after 10 and after 15 i thought like i'm, I'm probably i'm, I'm good yep. i'm good we've enough. all been there uh but really after about 20 and after a, a few years working in rooms and knowing how to break on a board and mm-hmm. all that stuff i now look at my samples and say i the next i look at my samples and say i should i should be able to get staffed off of this and then the next hurdle i think that hopefully the next five years will unlocked for me and this is some older writers that I know have this where they can write at something and go, this is going to sell. Mm, uh, I right. can take this into a room, and if they're looking for this genre, it will sell. And I don't know that my stuff is right th- quite there yet. I think I could sell something I've written, but it would maybe, you know, it's, I can't look at what a studio is after and a genre space and just say, bang, I'm going to hit it, hit the bullseye, and they're going to love it, and it's going to sell in the room. And that's a skill I want to develop. But I do know that, you know, I, I really do believe that being staffed's a matter of time and my material can speak for itself. Um, and that took a long time. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, I mean, it sounds like you've had a lot of practice and experience, which I think is a lot, is, is something that a lot of emerging and aspiring writers don't realize. They think that the first or second thing that they write has to be the one because they've invested so much into it. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes, you know, it may not be, I mean, maybe, maybe they're, you know, the one, the one, the the Neo from the Matrix one, uh, but most likely it's going to take a few or more than a few to get to that point where you're writing at that level that you need to be at. Yeah, and that's why I set that six month uh, a new sample every six months for myself because notes will trickle in from your mentors and your betters, right? And you will be tempted to address those notes right away and, and dig it out. But honestly, like for me, the script's done. It's in a solid place where people are liking it. I'm getting some notes. If I get one note over and over again that's small, maybe I'll dig in over a weekend. But for the most part, that script's on a shelf for six months. And then when I finish my next script, I can go back to one of the old scripts and give it a polish over the weekend or what have you. Uh, And then I can pull out all the notes that have trickled in and look at everything. Uh, But, you know... if (laughs) It might sound crazy, but, you know, like June 30th, if I started it on January 1st, June 30th, it's done. That is the sample that goes out. That is what it is until December 31st. I can revisit it. Okay. That's an interesting sort of way to look at it. I think that's uh, getting, giving yourself some distance, I think, is important. And plus, every script you write, you get better. Yeah. And so you can look back on it with clear eyes. Um, and notes, too. I think that's, that's also valuable because there is this tendency to either, one, sort of ignore or bash notes saying they don't understand which some writers do, they get sort of defined and, or, you know, because it is a personal thing or they, they try to address every note mm-hmm. and they end up writing and rewriting things that don't necessarily need to be rewritten. Um, but if you get the same note from multiple people, then there may very well be an issue with whatever it happens to be. Yeah, I think that's true. And the other thing that I've found when I first, and this actually is circling back a little bit to a question you had before, um, the best thing I can tell people that are starting to get an assistant job and just can't get one beyond the networking thing is to start a writer's group and, and mm. just invite as many one who wants to join who says they're a TV writer. And then it's self-selecting because after a month or two, only 10 people will show up out of the 25 that said they would come. Right. And then of those 10, you'll start to see the people that you identify with and you really feel a connection to. So I had a writer's group for about a year and a half, two years when I first got out here. And eventually... It was three or four people that I really trusted and believed in and I felt was were peers. And so I was like, you know, the group, I don't need the group anymore because I think these are the people that make sense to give me notes. And, and one of them is a co-producer on American Horror Story. And mm. we still read everybody, everything each other writes, you know. Um, and then I add people to that arsenal of people I can ask for notes on things based on people I connect with on shows I've been on. And um, one thing I do, this is a, I may consider it a ballsy thing, but at the end of every show that I'm on as an assistant, I ask in in individual email or in person, every single writer and assistant to read something I've written. Um, And about half of them do it and half of them don't. And that's not casting aspersions on them. But, you know, if a showrunner or a producer level is not willing to read something of yours after you just got them lunch for a year, uh, don't expect them to be a mentor to you going forward. That's a good point. That's a great point. Uh, plus, you never know if you don't ask. Yeah. And also, mm-hmm. you know, w- when the next season comes around and you have that conversation with the door closed in the office about your future, um, they'll have read something of yours and you know that they know your material. And uh, something that I just have committed to at this point in my career, and I'm in my early 30s, I've, I've been 
out here about five years and I've been on five different shows is after a year as an assistant, um, you know, if I'm going to come back and I haven't had that opportunity because my shows have been canceled or my boss has been let go. But at the end of the year, I kind of go out with a showrunner or whoever my boss was for like a postmortem. And I say, you know, how did you think I did? Was there anything that I can improve on? If we came back, like, how would you see me fitting in? Um, and obviously they're not going to say, I'm going to staff you for sure. Right. But they might say, you know, look, um, I think if we come back, the script coordinator really is the next in line. He's older than you are. He has more experience. And I think they fit better in the room. Um, you know, okay, our room had five men and one women, woman this year. So I don't think that me promoting you is going to make sense here. And, you know, that's all valid. But you do want to know the lay of the land. And I've had friends who stay at a job for seven years with a showrunner without having those conversations and then they wake up one day and have the conversation and the showrunner says well i've never thought of you in that way i don't intend on promoting you i don't like your material you know right that hard thing that would have been much easier to hear before you invested a good chunk of your young life in it sure uh, and i do want to say i don't want to glide over my comment about men and women because it could be equally feasible that the room has five women and two men and they don't want to have another woman come on staff because it wouldn't be the right balance or what have you. So right. I don't mean that as a gendered comment, just as you need to be aware that a room needs to be both diverse in terms of uh, writing and creativity and also diverse in terms of identity and representation. And both of those things are important. And if there is a lack of diversity in the room that you're in, that's a very valid reason for your boss to say it's not the right time to promote you because it wouldn't add what we need it to add to the room right but you like you said it could also be any number of a myriad of reasons whether or not they didn't respond to your style or whether your style is too similar to their own or any and you know anything yes you know in particular yeah and the unfortunate thing is like i would like to believe that the boss owes you one but they they'll never see it that way they, sure. they don't no boss thinks they owe you a staff job um they think of it as this is you having this job is an opportunity in itself and that's all that I owe you. Some may feel like they owe a little more in the sense that they'll grab coffee with you or they'll read your material. Uh, but no showrunner is going to think that they owe you after X number of years to staff you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you shouldn't feel like you're owed that either because that definitely comes across in the way you carry yourself and the way you ask for things. Um, you know, and so if you go into that with that expectation, you can obviously not only sort of be disappointed in the result, but it, it sort of could taint your relationship with that individual. Just go into it doing what you can. And yeah. I think you had a great, great uh, uh, way about it in terms of just being out there, you know, because obviously every showrunner knows that their showrunner's assistant, that their writer's assistant, that their writer's PA all want to be writers. It's not like hidden knowledge, but at the same time, um, and, and like I think one of the great things you had mentioned was uh, sending out that email, not just to get people to read your material, which is incredibly valuable, and uh, it is an investment on their part uh, because their time is limited, and I'm sure they get hit up a million times um, by different people to read their material, but to see who responds and who doesn't in terms of knowing like if somebody doesn't respond, they're far less likely to be supportive of other writers in the future. And that's great to know, to have in that d database. Yeah, not everyone's going to mentor you. No. And not, every and not everyone needs to. Right, um, and that's fine. I mean, it doesn't... And, you know, I've, I would say on every show I've been on, there's been one or two people that have really taken me under their wing, felt like we connected, and really been... We have a friendship and a relationship. Uh, you know, for example, one of the mid-level producers on the bold type, uh, he didn't come back to the bold type. He developed a pilot. It was a genre pilot. He's not really a genre guy. It's kind of a genre soap. And so he had me help him with development and research and gave me a front row seat into the whole process of development. And that would never have happened if I didn't send him my material and talk to him, uh, identify myself as a writer, tell him what I do and show him the material that I have. Uh, and you just, you cannot expect to succeed if you're not doing that. Right. No, and I think you do it in a great way. Um, because we were also talking earlier about uh, like going into things and offering to help people uh, on different projects, whether it's a short film or reading somebody a script, without expectation mm -hmm. of anything in return. Yep. Because if you go into every offer of something with the expectation of an immediate return, 
you know, obviously you hope that somebody, if you do a bunch of favors for somebody, that they would return it at some point if if you're ever in need. Um, but you can't, I don't think you can go into it expecting that because people can see that, that you're just... 100%. And I, I look at the writers that I admire and who work a lot and who are at the producer level and without fail, they have one thing in common, which is they keep in touch and they have like sort of a generosity and a, I, I would call it a gentlemanly or a gentlewomenly behavior mm-hmm. where like, for example, they may send out personalized Christmas cards. They may drop you an email. Hey, Brendan, I saw you got a writer's assistant job and I just want to say that's wonderful. Hey, um, I saw the pictures from the honeymoon and it looked amazing and we just got to catch up soon. And, you know... I know people say LA's fake and it's bullshit, but it isn't. It, you know, at a certain point, people who conduct themselves that way, even if they're sending 200 people a personalized email in a given month or whatever, mm-hmm. they are showing that they care and that they're invested right. and that they want to have a community. And that stuff really does matter. And so something I said to you before we jumped on was like, I've made a habit of if someone's in the trades who I know or somebody gets nominated for an Emmy or someone wins an award or they sell something and I find out through a friend, I'll just write them a little email. Hey, you know, I'm it's, you had, a, you had a win. Congratulations. I'm thinking about you. Right. And that stuff matters because right. I'm not asking them for anything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so uh, we've been talking for quite a while. We actually talked for a long time before we started the podcast. <laughs> but I wanted to get to uh, a, a fun part. Cool. We've talked a lot about writing and your process and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to rapid fire 10 questions to you. And just maybe you could answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. I'm ready. All right. Uh, number one, what's your favorite movie? Princess Bride. Number two, what's your favorite TV show? Friday Night Lights. Uh, number three, what album, soundtrack, or genre of music do you listen to most while writing? Country music. Number four, uh, how do you reward yourself or relax after finishing a new script? Uh, old-fashioned. Okay. Uh, number five, favorite restaurant or style of cuisine? In-N-Out Burger. Great. Uh, number six, uh, what's your favorite weekend getaway? Uh, any national park in California. Uh, number seven, who is your favorite writer and what is the best thing they've ever written, in your opinion? Sorry, it's taking me a second. This is like, <laughs> I, I, this is not a rapid fire response. Um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Love in the Time of Cholera. Great. Um, what's the best thing you've ever written? Um, I just finished a period piece about Davy Crockett and Andrew Jackson. Very cool. Um, if you couldn't be a writer, what would be your dream job? Can I say director? Sure. Director. Great. <laughs> um, number 10, who or what is your inspiration? I've always been an artist and I've always wanted to do art and I don't know how to live without it. And, you know, it's funny people online talk about procrastination or, oh, I can't write today or writer's block. It's always just been a part of who I am. Um, I will say that finding a life partner who feels the same way is inspiring watching my wife work and see how determined and committed and passionate she is, has inspired me. But I don't look at writing and art as something that I need inspiration to do. Um, I look at it like a craft. It's like I, if I made bowls for a living, as long as the bowl holds food, I've made a good bowl. And if it's pretty, that's great. That's how I feel about um, scripts and writing generally. And so I don't need inspiration. Wow. That's great. Self-motivating, self-inspiring. That's great. Yeah, I guess so. And I know that's an odd thing, but I mean, for me, no. it, as far back as I can remember, right. I was doing this. You know, like my earliest memories, my, my parents claim, and I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, that I, at age six, cut out an acting class ad and said I wanted to take acting classes. But I do remember from age 12 on, when I started doing church musicals, there's nothing else I wanted to do. Well, I know that for individuals, like, I don't know about inspiration. That's kind of a new thing, but I think that's great. But I know motivation. Like, if you're self-motivating, then no one can stop you. Like, if you don't need external motivation to force you to to do something, but you're self-motivated in, in your behaviors. Yeah, I think some other writers listening might have this feeling, and I, I don't know how common it is, but like, I get antsy. If I go more than three days without writing, not on vacation, I get antsy. I, I just need to do it. Like, I feel like 
it's like the feeling if you don't go to the gym for a week or you don't do anything physical it's that it's that for the mind mm. you know right, <laughs> like right. it's like i just need to do it and so i think it's funny because there's a big culture on twitter of everyone oh i i just have to clean my whole house before i do any writing oh procrastinating again there's almost right. a cult to procrastination but like i i don't know i to me as a writer, I don't feel that. And I think it, for those of us that don't, we should be more vocal about that because I think young writers hear that like procrastination and writer's is blog natural. is natural. And it, and, and it may, and there are, there have been many productive writers who have that. Um, there have also been a lot of people who think they need to be writers that maybe don't. And I don't want to be the guy that says, kid, if you can do anything else, because I think, a little, you know, law school's hard too. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, but I will say like, if you don't enjoy writing, then maybe you're not a writer because shouldn't we, if we only get one life, shouldn't we do something we enjoy? Right, right. Lastly, do you have any advice for those emerging screenwriters, TV writers out there, or is there anything else you wanted to share? I, I think the big thing is that everyone wants to find the one path that is going to be the perfect cheat code to become a staff writer tomorrow. Right. And it doesn't exist. There are many pathways there. However, um, something I mentioned before we got on is like, you want to buy as many lottery tickets as possible. And you want to be clear when you're buying a raffle ticket that has a one in a hundred chance or a lottery ticket. That's a one in a million chance. Right. So set yourself, for, set yourself up for success. Try to get that assistant job because I would say, half to two thirds of writers I've ever met got their first job because they were a good assistant and the show came back for a second year or they were a good assistant on an agent's desk and someone finally read their feature. That's the most typical way to do it. However, um, I have met people who were blogging at Jezebel and they got a staff job because someone read their material and liked it. They wrote a graphic novel and it got out there. They made a short film and mm -hmm. that led to things um, I, and you know, there's the Harrison Ford style story. I have literally met people that I was so-and-so's favorite bartender and they read my material and I got staffed off of it. Now for every one of those, there are 30 to 40, I was a writer's assistant, you know, so the best ticket to get yourself is the assistant. Um, but there's no one path. There's no cheat code. It's just move to Los Angeles, work hard, be nice, meet people, and wait for it to happen. There you go. Um, thanks for coming on the show, Brendan. Uh, such great. a pleasure. Thank you for having you me. You were so smart, and you know so much. Uh, and you're much taller than I thought you'd be. <laughs> which is <laughs> you mentioned that when I walked in. Yeah. I, I, I guess I, maybe I have short guy energy on the uh Which is funny, because I just had Josh share on uh, the podcast, and... He, in his bio, it says, I am the tallest screenwriter in Hollywood. I don't know if that's true or not, but he's tall. He's very tall. Uh, and you're not that tall. But you're not Josh Sher tall, but you're, you're, you're tall. I'm a hair under six foot, which I think is a nice height to be because uh, no one remarks, wow, you're tall, but no one remarks, wow, you're short. You know, So I feel <laughs> good about it. And I will say, um, I always kind of thought it was like 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, and then I went to Japan, uh, where everyone is quite short right. compared to Americans. And when you're a little taller than, like, what people expect in a room, uh, you start to, like, hit your head on stuff or you have to, like, sit weirdly in chairs and things. And so now I'm like, you know what? My, my tall six foot four and higher brethren, I see that there is some trouble and, you know, the grass is always greener. Right. Now, now when you're flying to Japan, or um, did you notice that the plane seat, the, the, uh, the leg room was less? It, it, well, it's interesting because international flights, you tend to get more, but then you have to subtract because it was a Japanese airline, so I got less. Yeah. So I ended up with about the same as oh, normal. Oh, okay. You know there you I mean? go. There you go. Um, but uh, the biggest one for me was just like the having to think about hitting my head walking into like, and particularly like we did a lot of castles and old mm, like historic right. buildings mm -hmm. that were just built for Japanese people. And at that time, the Japanese people were shorter right. 500 years ago, like we all were, you know, all, all lineages were. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about how like stuff in the West Coast of America is just so big. Everything's a lodge, right. you know, like you, you could be nine feet tall and walk through the door and it's just a very different um cultural framework you know <laughs> down to the architecture um be sure to follow brendan on twitter and it's brendan with an e b-r-e-n-d-e-n 
Gallagher with no H, right? Yeah. G-A-L-L-A-G-E-R. I, I, that's right. Uh, the H would have been one character too long for the oh, Twitter handle. So, you, uh, you know, I'm the the H is in there for my email and everything. But for right. I had like a goofy Twitter name. And then eventually I was like, I just make my name. And then it doesn't quite fit. And I was like, well... I can drop the H for the Twitter handle and it'll be fine, you know. <laughs> so that's where you can find me. And, you know, free, free, feel free to DM or at me and say hi, especially if you're kind of doing the same kind of thing that I'm doing. I'm uh, between TV shows. And so I do a lot of blogging for websites like the Daily Dot and Complex about politics and TV, which means I pretty much live on Twitter. So uh, you will see me there. And uh, and they can find your writing on brendangallagher.com. Yeah. And that's with the H for sure. You can see some of my writing. Um, my scripts are password protected there, but if you want to read something of mine, I would be happy to uh, leave that off. And you can see some of my leftist political writing there as well <laughs> and some TV and film reviews and whatnot. And if they want to have coffee with you, they can email you and you'll have coffee with them in 2028. Maybe <laughs> No, like I, I don't want to discourage anybody. <laughs> Feel free to reach out. I would, I would love to meet some new people and, and talk about the business. Great. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at Scripts and Scribes. Um, and uh, be sure to check out our website, scriptsandscribes.com. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Brendan. Hey, thanks so much. It was great talking to you.